You are listening to episode 53 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. If you want your children and your wife and your friends to survive no matter what, you are silly. For you are wanting things to be up to you that are not up to you, and things to be your own that are not your own. You are just as foolish if you want your slave to make no mistakes. For you are wanting inferiority not to be a flaw, but something else. But if your wish is not to be frustrated in your desires, this is in your power. Train yourself then in this power that you do have. Our master is anyone who has the power to implement or prevent the things we want or don't want. Whoever wants to be free, therefore, should wish for nothing or avoid nothing that is up to other people. Failing that, one is bound to be a slave. Enchiridion 14. There's nothing really new in this chapter of Enchiridion for those who have been following the series. That is the nature of the Enchiridion, which Arian created as a handbook for Stoic Prokoptons, so that they could keep it readily at hand as a primer for Stoic doctrines. Therefore, as we will see, there's a great deal of repetition in these lessons. Nevertheless, as I was preparing for this podcast, I was struck by a question that inspired me to take this episode in another direction. The question is this, why would anyone with a conscious or unconscious allegiance to the modern, secular worldview even consider Stoicism as a viable way of life? Consider some of the other passages that we've already covered in this series. When you kiss your little child or your wife, say that you are kissing a human being. Then, if one of them dies, you will not be troubled. In Chiridion 3. Don't ask for things to happen as you would like them to, but wish them to happen as they actually do, and you will be all right. In Chiridion 8. Never say about anything I have lost it, but say I have returned it. Has your child died? It has been returned. Has your wife died? She has been returned. I have been robbed of my land. No, that has been returned as well. Enchiridion 11. These statements by Epictetus contradict what all moderns, those raised in the West at least, are taught from childhood. When a person views these statements from the perspective of modernity, they will likely ask, how can anyone past or present assent to ideas like this? What kind of worldview could possibly support such apparently odd and counterintuitive ideas. And therein lies the conundrum that moderns face when they first encounter the Stoic texts. We are confronted with words like God, Logos, and Providence from the ancient Stoic worldview, and likely lack the necessary knowledge to understand the meaning of these words within the context of Hellenistic Greek culture and the holistic philosophical system known as Stoicism. If moderns have any familiarity at all with words like God, Logos, and Providence, it likely comes from religious training, or college professors who mock these ideas. Therefore, secular-minded, enlightened, educated moderns might feel justified in rejecting those ideas. In fact, moderns might feel compelled to reject them as antiquated pre-enlightenment ideas. 
Unfortunately, that judgment of Stoicism is based on a modern worldview, with some underlying assumptions and consequences that moderns may have never actually considered for themselves. I know that was true for me. As I previously said on this podcast, I was a hardcore atheist when I started studying Stoicism. It took me almost a year to overcome the misconceptions and cognitive biases of my modern worldview. Worldviews are essential because they guide our beliefs and actions in ways that may evade our conscious awareness and circumspection. Jean-Baptiste Gorinat wrote about this in his paper titled Stoicism Today in 2009. He discussed the connection between Stoicism and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, CBT, which is partly derived from Stoic principles. He wrote, Cognitive therapy is based on three hypotheses. One, one's behavior springs from one's view of oneself and the world, and our psychological difficulties and disturbances derive from these views and from our misconceived perception of external events. Two, this point of view may be modified. Three, this modification of our thoughts and opinions may have positive effects on our behavior and emotions, since the latter are dependent on the former. The, quote, view of oneself and the world, end quote, that he refers to is one's worldview. It's a combination of a model of the world, the way the world actually is, and a model for the world, the way that one should act within the world to survive and achieve their conception of happiness. Jeremy Lent provides some insight into this concept of a worldview in his 2017 book titled The Patterning Instinct. He wrote, Each of us conducts our lives according to a set of assumptions about how things work, how our society functions, its relationship with the natural world, what's valuable and what's possible. This is our worldview, which often remains unquestioned and unstated, but is deeply felt and underlies many of the choices we make in our lives. We form our worldview implicitly as we grow up, from our family, friends, and culture. And once it's set, we're barely aware of it unless we're presented with a different worldview for comparison. The unconscious origin of our worldview makes it quite inflexible. And that's fine when it's working for us. But suppose our worldview is causing us to act collectively in ways that could undermine humanity's future. Then it would be valuable to become more conscious of it. End quote. Then Lent opens his 2021 book titled The Web of Meaning with a story of what he calls the speech that we are all likely to hear during our youth from some well-meaning adult who wishes to pass on their wisdom about the way the world is and how one must operate in it to survive and prosper. He points out these types of conversations are ubiquitous because they channel the themes that we hear every day from those in positions of authority, including the talking heads on TV, successful business people, teachers, and school textbooks. He notes, quote, even when the speech is not given explicitly, its ideas seep into our daily thoughts, end quote. He writes, quote, these basic elements, give or take a few, form the foundation of the predominant worldview. They infuse much of what is accepted as indisputably true in most conversations that take place about world affairs. They are so pervasive that most of us never question them. We feel they must be based on solid facts. Why else would all those people in positions of authority rely on them? That's the characteristic that makes a worldview so powerful. Like fish that don't realize they're swimming in water because it's all they know, 
we tend to assume that our worldview simply describes the world the way it is, rather than recognizing it's a constructed lens that shapes our thoughts and ideas into certain preconditioned patterns. End quote. So what is the worldview most people in positions of authority and influence embrace? It's revealed in the assumed intellectual superiority behind demands like follow the science or follow the facts. It's the appeal to authority underlying assertions like the science tells us or science says. It's the assumed worldview upon which most moderns stand when they demand proof and evidence to support your assertions, while they simultaneously declare that their beliefs are based upon science. It's called scientism, and that label will be disputed by those who hold to it as a belief system as quickly and adamantly as the label fundamentalism will be rejected by those who demand strict adherence to a set of religious beliefs. So what is scientism? Richard Williams, a professor of psychology at Brigham Young University, offers the following definition. Scientism is, in its basic form, a dogmatic overconfidence in science and scientific knowledge. But more importantly, it is overconfidence in science defined by, constructed around, and requiring that the world must be made up of physical matter following particular lawful principles, and that all phenomena are essentially thus constituted. This gives scholars the great confidence that characterizes scientism. The confidence associated with this worldview is seen in the insistence that any scholarly endeavor that does not ground itself in that required set of constructs and ideas must be rejected as unscientific, and any knowledge claims made as a result of such endeavors are suspect. Such knowledge claims are to be rejected as being only metaphysical speculation, reflecting mere subjective bias, or, ironically, a devotion to religious orthodoxy, end quote. Religious believers in centuries past rarely stopped to consider how some of their beliefs affected their psychology and behavior. Why? They didn't need to. Their worldview was mainstream and left largely unchallenged. In the same way, moderns neglect to consider how the scientific worldview that implicitly molds the spirit of our secular age affects their beliefs and behaviors. Why? Scientism and secularism are now mainstream, so their worldview is rarely challenged in modern times. Now let's consider some of the ideas perpetuated by the modern orthodox scientific worldview. 1. The universe and human life are accidents. They result from a long sequence of chance events. 2. There is no inherent meaning in the universe or in human life. 3. Everything is reducible to interactions of inert matter constrained by physical laws. 4. Humans are driven by selfish genes to propagate their genetic code into the next generation. 5. Consciousness is an illusion, an epiphenomenon of neural activity. 6. Free will is an illusion, because there is no room for any freedom of the human will within the mechanistic clock-like operation of the universe. Those are just a few of the assumptions made by modern science. But I wonder, do the intellectuals and scientists who impose those beliefs on moderns ever stop to consider where those beliefs will lead us? Do they reflect on what kind of behaviors they might produce? Francis Crick was a Nobel Prize-winning molecular biologist 
who played a crucial role in discovering the helical structure of DNA. He spent the final decades of his life attempting to explain, or explain away, human consciousness. In 1994, a decade before his death, he opened his book titled The Astonishing Hypothesis with these lines, which put the worldview of scientism on full display. Quote, You, your hopes and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. As Carol's Alice might have proclaimed it, you're nothing but a pack of neurons, end quote. Now, Francis Crick probably intended to be provocative to capture his reader's attention. However, again, I wonder if the intellectuals and scientists who make remarks like this consider their impact on people. What happens to the psychology of a person who believes that they are nothing but a pack of neurons? Here's another example. Bill Nye, the science guy, offered this gem in a speech from the perspective of scientism. Quote, I'm insignificant. I am just another speck of sand. And the earth, really, in the cosmic scheme of things, is another speck. And the sun, an unremarkable star. And the galaxy is a speck. I'm a speck, on a speck, orbiting a speck, among other specks, among still other specks, in the middle of specklessness. I suck. End quote. Contrast these scientific appraisals of humanity with the words of Epictetus, who is speaking from the perspective of the Stoic worldview. Quote, If only one could be properly convinced of this truth, they were all first and foremost children of God, and that God is the father of both human beings and gods, I think one would never harbor any mean or ignoble thought about oneself. Why, if Caesar were to adopt you, no one could be able to endure your conceit. So if you know that you're a son of God, won't you be filled with pride? Discourses 1, 3, 1-2. However, Epictetus didn't stop there. You see, the degradation of human nature is not a modern development. The ancient Stoics also confronted people who held a dim view of humanity, and they rejected their view of human nature. Here's the continuation of the passage from Discourses that I just read. Quote, As things stand, however, we don't react in that way. But since these two elements have been mixed together in us from our conception, the body, which we have in common with the animals, and reason and intelligence, which we share with the gods, some of us incline towards the kinship that is wretched and mortal, and only a few of us toward that which is divine and blessed. Now, since everyone, whoever he may be, is bound to deal with each matter in accordance with the belief that he holds about it, those few who think they were born for fidelity for self-respect, and for the sound use of impressions will never harbor any mean or ignoble thought about themselves, whereas the majority of people will do exactly the opposite. For who am I? A poor, wretched man, they say. Or, quote, this miserable flesh of mine, miserable to be sure, but you also have something better in you than that poor flesh. Why do you neglect that, then, and attach yourself to what is mortal? Discourses 1, 3, 3 to 6. The Stoics understood that humankind's view of cosmic nature and human nature would affect their beliefs and behaviors. Therefore, they assented to a distinctive worldview with different assumptions. <laughs> Wait right there, someone might object. I don't base my worldview on assumptions and beliefs. 
I base it on science. Yes, I have no doubt that you do. However, you probably fail to realize that your science is built on a foundation of metaphysical assumptions, which cannot be proven. No, your professors probably left that little detail out during your lectures. If you don't believe me, do a little research on the unprovable assumptions at the foundation of science. Now, I want to make sure that my position on this is very clear. I am not, I repeat, not being critical or dismissive of science. Science has improved our lives in many ways. I, instead, am criticizing the scientism that oozes forth from some scientists and intellectuals who think the scientific method has or will answer all the hard questions that humans grapple with daily. I am criticizing the belief system of scientism, not the scientific method. And here's why. While humans appear innately programmed to seek meaning in the cosmos and their individual lives, scientism tells us that life is meaningless. Scientism tells us our human consciousness and any sense of freedom that we may feel to make decisions are nothing more than illusions created by the firings of neurons in our heads. During the last century, scientism led humanity to the very edge of the existential cliff where we currently stand. It degraded us and stripped us of everything we value about being human. Now, some of those same scientists who propagate this dehumanizing worldview wring their hands in amazement as humans are on the verge of destroying themselves and our planet with the technologies that they created. What did they expect when they told us that we were an accident of nature, that our consciousness and sense of free will is an illusion, and that our life is meaningless? Yes, beliefs have consequences. Worldviews can produce human holocausts and environmental destruction. What's the answer? A different worldview. Now, there may be several alternatives. However, the ancient Stoics created one that I think is best suited for Western minds. I believe the Stoic worldview can change human lives and the course of human history. If we choose to view the cosmos as a purposeful living organism we humans are entangled within rather than the chance creation of accidental combinations of matter, our lives suddenly have inherent meaning. When we see other humans, even the most wicked and vile among us, as bearers of a fragment of the same divine mind we all share, there is hope that we can learn to live together harmoniously. When we start teaching our children to be responsible for creating their character and well-being, they will stop blaming and hating others for their circumstances. When we teach people to step off the hedonic treadmill and seek what is truly good and avoid what is truly bad, they will be transformed and act appropriately to transform our communities, nations, and the world. Yes, some of the Stoic teachings appear pretty odd, out of touch, and even counterintuitive from the perspective of the modern worldview. So why should any modern seriously consider the Stoic worldview? Watch the news for a few minutes on any given day, and you'll have a good reason. Listen to the hate that fills the souls of those dividing us into opposing political, racial, socioeconomic, and gender groups, and you'll have another reason. Consider the current path towards self-destruction humanity appears to be traveling, and you'll have an answer. 
to those moderns who reject the Stoic worldview because its religious nature triggers their intellectual sensibilities? Consider what the modern secular worldview created in the 20th century and where it has led us to at the beginning of the 21st century. If the last century of global destruction and inhumanity doesn't trigger your ethical sensibilities, what will? Yes, worldviews matter. A model of the world is necessary to operate within the world. And I am simply arguing that our modern worldview presents an inaccurate and demonstrably harmful model of nature and human nature, and I'm suggesting that the Stoic worldview is a viable alternative. I am proposing it is time for moderns to seriously consider the ancient Stoic's worldview. It was a worldview way ahead of its time, and I believe the 21st century may just be its appropriate time. Thank you for listening to Stoicism on Fire. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That tells others that this podcast is worth listening to and helps introduce more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you're interested in exploring traditional Stoicism further, you will find plenty of resources at traditionalstoicism.com. If you're ready for an online mentored training program, check out the College of Stoic Philosophers at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That is where I received my initial education and training in the theory and practice of Stoicism. If you're interested in a social media environment where you can find some like-minded fellow travelers, join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, send me an email at chris at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue practicing the traditional form of Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.